everybody off balance. What are we? We're in Samuel tonight. We are back in First Samuel tonight. We won't be there for long, but that's where we're going to start. Okay, announcements. Let's see. I think uh, everybody should be aware, just from looking around, that Vacation Bible School is in progress. And from what I have heard, everything is going very well. They've got about 22 to 25 kids that have been showing up. That's great. Also have an announcement that we need to be in prayer. I think I just threw it away. Oh, here it is. Uh, for Camp Arete, um, they have a deficit right now of about $5,500. And so somebody's car is, is that yours? Okay. Stop. Um, anyway, there's a deficit of about 5500 at this point, which is almost par for the course. Right, Jeff? This time of year. So um, the Lord has always provided and will will provide. So we appreciate any help for Camp Arete financially at this point. I think that is about it. Oh, one other thing. This Saturday morning we have the men's prayer breakfast, and the we're going to have a special uh, guest speaker, and that's going to be Texas Representative Rick Miller, who's spoken before, and he will uh, be uh, just updating us on what's going on in Austin, what's going on in, uh, the, in regard to elections, scuttlebutt, all of these kinds of things uh, that are going on. And so you can put your questions together that you might have regarding anything related to uh, state or, or uh, local politics. I think that is uh, that pretty much covers it. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we are uh, set apart to God for the purpose of the study of his word that we are spiritually cleansed, walking by the Spirit, uh, walking according to the truth, walking in the light, all of those various uh, phrases that the Scripture uses, and that we are prepared to uh, study the Word that God the Holy Spirit can use it toward our spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so very grateful for your grace toward us, that we are sinners. doesn't matter what sins we have committed. We were born spiritually dead because of Adam's sin. And every single one of us, no matter who we are or what we've done, are all under that condemnation. But the only solution you provided, which is the death of Christ on the cross, and that is the only hope and the only ultimate solution. And Father, we pray for this nation at this time because they are in desperate need of hearing the truth of the gospel and having an exhibition of your grace and of your unconditional love. 
And, Father, we're specifically mindful of the situation that occurred, this horrible attack that occurred this last uh, <clears throat> Saturday night in Orlando. And we pray for the chaplains and the others that are uh, talking to the survivors and the families, and we pray that there are those who understand the gospel and can minister to those folks and help them understand your grace and your goodness and the redemption solution of Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that as Christians we might be able to exemplify uh, the truth in this situation and the need for uh, the need to communicate grace and the need that spiritual life is the only only real solution. But in the terms of a temporary solution, we need a secure nation. And we are at war, not because we choose to be at war, but because a religion has chosen to declare uh, holy war against the West and against the United States. And failure to identify that as the problem uh, creates a myopia that is self-destructive. And, Father, we need to understand that uh, what this man did was directly related to his religious beliefs and that until we face the role of religious beliefs in these kinds of events, we will never be able to solve the problem because we can't identify it. And we pray that you will raise up leaders who can accurately identify the problem and address the problem that we might have a secure nation. Father, tonight as we study your word and we will touch on themes related to this, we pray that you would help us to understand more about who you are, more about your righteousness and justice, and that we can help others to understand what these issues are and how they apply to these contemporary events. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in a section in 1 Samuel, in 1 Samuel 15, which is based on the issue of what some call holy war. So we have to raise this question, especially in light of the things that happened uh, just this last weekend. What is holy war? Uh, What is the difference between holy war and jihad, if there is a difference? And does the Bible really advocate or has the Bible advocated at any time holy war? Is that a viable biblical term? And I want to make one comment about what happened this last weekend because we're hearing so much that's coming out that is sympathetic to the LGBT community. And as since they are all human beings, it doesn't matter what people's sins are, whether it, in, in all these sin lists we have in Scripture that include homosexuality and lesbianism and all of these things, they also include sins such as gossip and slander and arrogance and divisiveness. Uh, it may be a sin that has more extreme consequences than others, but we're all sinners, and it's not about what these folks have ever done. Um, because every one of us is in a boat where we have committed sin. There is one pastor whose name I will not mention. I hesitate to even call him a pastor because he is an absolute blight on the escutcheon of the cross. He's an enemy of the cross, and he is an enemy of grace, and he has a pastorate or a church or a group of followers. They're not really a church in, uh, in Arizona, and he has uh, published a number of things over the years 
uh, hostile to dispensationalism. He's anti-Semitic. And he came out and said, well, these these uh, homosexuals got exactly what they deserve, uh, probably ended their life early so they won't suffer any diseases or anything. And he just goes on and on. And this is, exemplifies a person who's not a biblical Christian, doesn't understand biblical truth, doesn't understand grace, doesn't understand the cross, doesn't understand sin. It's just a person whose soul, like everybody else's, has been influenced by arrogance and and evil. And this is a great opportunity for people to demonstrate uh, tremendous love and compassion. I read a report from uh, someone uh, just this morning that Chick-fil-A in Orlando came in on Sunday uh, when they're normally closed and cooked a full array of food and meals and took it to the folks who were standing in those enormous lines in order to give blood to those who were, uh, in order to help those who were, were uh, uh, injured. And that's a great example of grace. They didn't want publicity. They didn't do it for attention. They wanted to keep it all under the radar. That's how Christianity operates. That is exemplifying the grace of Jesus Christ. But there's going to be a lot of talk about how this is a hate crime. All crimes are hate crimes, in my opinion. Um, that that this is related to uh, homosexuality in some way, whatever. This evidence so far at this point seems to indicate that this guy has a problem with homosexuality. He was probably torn. He's got a, a belief drilled into his conscience from his homosexual from uh, from Islam that he's going to go to wherever they go, hell, lake of fire, whatever they have, eternal judgment because he's homosexual. The only way he can have forgiveness, this is why you have to understand religious beliefs and why everything, as I've taught you for years, is driven ultimately by your understanding of God and your understanding of man's nature and your understanding of God's solution. In Islam, the only way that you can have any kind of forgiveness for that kind of guilt is to commit jihad and be killed in the process and be a martyr so that immediately you are uh, ushered into their understanding of paradise. And that's what happened. I believe that this guy had this this psychological tension and guilt that had built up over over the years because he had homosexual uh, tendencies. On the one hand, this violated his Islamic conscience. On the other hand, and the only way he could resolve everything was to uh, commit jihad. So Islam, ISIS, that gave him a rationale. You can't separate what he did, and that's what the focus from some elements in our culture will do is to try to separate what he did. It's not really Islam. He really wasn't um, involved with ISIS. They're going to come up with all that rationale, and that's just hogwash. It is, it's garbage. You have to understand what is going on here. He needed cleansing, and he felt like the only way he could do it was by going out in jihad. So that was his, that was his whole, whole strategy. Now, I want to talk some, and we'll hit this a little bit more in the next couple of weeks, based on what we have in First uh, Samuel uh, chapter, uh, chapter 15, this whole idea of so-called holy war and jihad, which is what you get out of Islamic theology, 
and whether or not this is justified. And ultimately, we're going to see that this comes down to the same basic question we were dealing with the last two Tuesday nights in the third and fourth sessions in the Holocaust special. And that's the problem of evil. Because the issue that comes up here is if God authorizes the annihilation of a group of people, how can that be explained in light of God's love, God's justice, and God's righteousness? This is usually presented as if this is very arbitrary, and God is just this wicked and mean, uh, horrible uh, God who, who authorizes slaughter of the Canaanites. So we have to look at this from a holistic framework in the scriptures. We can't just come in and look at it as it it is uh, indicated here in 1 Samuel. So we have to take time and look at what these answers are. And it's basically the same answer that I covered in that last lesson in, in dealing with the problem of evil because it relates. It's the same issue. In the problem of evil, the question is, what about God's righteousness? What about his justice? How can a righteous and just, omnipotent God allow evil? If he is loving, he would end evil. If he is omnipotent, he would have the power to. Because he hasn't, then uh, he uh, he is not able to, or he doesn't want to, or he really isn't loving. That's That's the argument. And the same thing undergirds this particular issue. So we need to take some time and think about this. Now, we're just going to look at the first few verses of 1 Samuel in order to set the stage. And this is one of those critical chapters that we have in in the Scripture uh, related to an important doctrine. There are several important doctrines that are uh, brought out in this section. 1 Samuel chapter 15, 1 through 3 begins, uh, Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Just an observation. When the Bible says that God chose a specific group of people for a mission, that is an exclusivity. This runs in the face of all political correctness and all liberalism, whether it's religious liberalism or political liberalism. That is the idea that there is a special group for any any purpose. Uh, the whole idea of democratic thinking has been so perverted uh, in the last uh, hundred years as a result of the influence of of Marxism and social justice ideas and these things that everybody ought to get the same thing. Uh, it's a distortion of the ideas of equality and, and liberty. Uh, God selected Israel for a specific mission. God can do that because he's God. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth, and he has a right to select whom he will in order to accomplish whatever task he, he has. Now, in verse 2, we read that the mission that God is giving Saul here Thus says the Lord of hosts. Now, this is a title that relates to God's sovereign uh, authority over the armies. The word for hosts is the Hebrew word sabaoth, which is a plural term. The English word hosts is just an antiquated term for armies and the military. And he is the commander of the armies. This brings, in, brings to bear both the invisible armies of the angels as well as he is the Lord over the armies of Israel. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. Poor, poor Amalek. What did they ever do to deserve 
complete annihilation. How mean God is to have this kind of punishment. I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now, now wait a minute. Don't we have a contradiction in Scripture here? Scripture says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Did Amalek try to totally annihilate Israel? No, they didn't. They didn't totally annihilate him. So how come God is going to punish them with total annihilation? That's background. Now go and attack Amalek in verse 3 and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child. Who's left out? The transgenders are left out, but that's another story. (laughs) All right. Just seeing if you're awake. Kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep. What do those poor animals do? Camel and donkey. Well, we might understand killing the camels. They're pretty nasty creatures. But what, what did the animals do? Why is there this complete annihilation of all of the livestock and all of the people, men, women, children, and and how can a just God do this? That's the question we have to ask. And we can't just answer that question in isolation. So just a couple of maps to understand the uh, circumstance here. I have to turn to this screen tonight because you can't see the other screen. And uh, here we are. Okay, here's the the green is the land of Canaan. That is the land promised God. God promised to Israel. Down in the south, this is the territory that is uh, occupied by uh, Amalek, and the Amalekites are basically a a. Um, uh, there are people that don't have a specific location. They have a few cities, but they moved around a lot. Uh, they were uh, somewhat like the Bedouin, except they were more organized, and they were they were almost like land land pirates. And they're down in the south. We have the Wadi of Egypt, uh, Wadi El Arish down here. This is the southern boundary of the land God promised to Israel. You see that the groups that are located around here, you have Amalek generally in this southern area. You have Edom over here to the southeast, Moab to the east, and Ammon to the east. Now, we know that Edom, the Edomites are the descendants of who? Esau. Amalekites are also descendants of Esau. Keep that in mind. This is a family affair. Then you have the Moabites and the Ammonites, and these are the... Uh, descendants of the two sons of Lot and committing incest with his two daughters. They initiated it and got uh, Lot drunk. So that gives us the basic geographical orientation here. Uh, This uh, map here shows the blue line. That is uh, Saul's line of attack against the Amalekites in the south. We'll get back to that later. So when we look at this verse, we have to understand what it means to utterly destroy. That's not the best translation, although that's what it ultimately indicates is a total and absolute annihilation of every man, woman, and child, and all the livestock. It is the Hebrew word cherem. Now, if I soften that a little bit and don't have that guttural cherem, it's harem. Anybody hear a word that sounds familiar? Okay, the word harem, and that's a cognate of this word, and it means to isolate 
Well, you have a sheik who's got a harem. All those women are isolated and kept away from everybody else. That's the basic idea in that word. It means to ban anyone else in a harem with women. It's to ban anyone else from being involved with them. Uh, they are to be devoted exclusively, set apart almost. It borders on that idea of uh, 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 being set apart or sanctified or consecrated to something. And it, it implies, a, in some cases, complete destruction. That's why that's uh, another another meaning. So we have to understand this whole thing. But first, let's get a little background on the Amalekites. To understand why God is doing this, we have to understand the historical relation of Amalek to Israel. We have to understand the role they've played since the time of the Exodus and uh, just some a few other things. So for background and answer, answering the question, who were the Amalekites? Under the first point, in First uh, uh, Samuel 15.3, God uses this word harm, which is sometimes translated ban or... Um, or to devote, and it refers to the complete annihilation of a people and what some will refer to as holy war. Now, I don't think that's a biblical concept or a biblical term. I don't like it. So I will either refer to this as the ban or I will refer to it as just harem, just the, the Hebrew word. When harem is called for, then that is something unique and distinct in God's, God's plan that we have to understand. The second thing is to understand the background. From whom did the Amalekites uh, come? Uh, They are the descendants of Esau through his wife Ada. Now remember, Esau is the brother of Jacob. He is the older brother of Jacob. He's the older twin uh, of Jacob. And uh, Jacob came out second. Edom came, Esau came out first because he was ruddy. He was given the nickname Edom, which is a cognate of Adam. And when God created Adam from the dust of the earth, he named him man. Adam is a word that sounds like the word for red. Uh, that would have referred probably to his skin color. And so uh, Esau has is also called Edom, and his descendants are the Edomites. And um, he had a wife in Genesis thirty-six twelve. Uh, Timnah was, uh, and, and he had a he had, uh, Ada was his wife. Genesis thirty-six sixteen, and she's a Canaanite woman. So they're related to the Canaanites through uh, Esau's wife, and <clears throat> also specifically identified as as a, a Hittite in Genesis thirty-six two. Now, in 36.12, we read, Now, Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. So, through Ada, he has a son, Eliphaz, and uh, she has a son named Amalek. So, this is Esau's grandson. And then, in verse 16, we read, uh, Chief Korah, Chief Gatam, and Chief Amalek. These are three tribal groups or clans that are descendants from, uh, from Esau. These were the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom, and they're the sons of Ada. So they are located off to the southwest, the territory of Edom. Now, later on, who's a famous Edomite in the New Testament? Who's the most famous Edomite in the New Testament? Herod the Great. 
Yeah, you all knew that one. Oh, yeah. Okay. Edom by then is, the territory of Edom is moved up into the area of Judah. But at this time, it's down south. This is the area uh, around Petra, if you've been, uh, been to Petra. Now, as we look at this, we see under a third point that the Amalekites uh, settled in this, uh, also settled in this area of the Negev, according to Numbers 13.29. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hebrew word for south is Negev. So in the United States, we had a civil war between the north and the Negev. Okay, it's just the word for south. So the Negev in Israel is just down south. So they, uh, the Amalekites dwell in the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. Uh, that would be in the uh, center part of the land of Canaan, the ridge that runs down from north to south. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea. So along with the Philistines, they were living along the seacoast in the Shephelah, area in in Israel and along the banks of the Jordan. Part of the problem with studying the the, the pre-Israel period there is you've got all these different ites, the Amorites, the uh, Jebusites, and the Amalekites, and the Canaanites, and several other, uh, several other groups. In Judges 12.15, we see that this is during the judgeship of a minor judge named Abdon. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, died and was buried in Pirathon, the land of Ephraim, in the mountains of the Amalekites. So see, by that period, they had taken over part of that center area in the hill country of Samaria. Uh, this is in the nor- what later becomes the northern kingdom. So they have made greater incursions there. So this shows that that Amalek has been a continuous problem with with is with um, uh, with the Israelites. The um, Amalekites have opposed Israel from the beginning, and uh, that's the next point that I want to look at. I think I'm on about point four. Is the, the background for this? We have to in order to get that we have to turn to Exodus chapter 17. So we're going to be in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, so you'll get to work on your uh, <clears throat> sword drill skills as we skip around in these, these passages. Exodus chapter 17. Now what's happened up to this point is the Exodus event has occurred. The Israelites have left Egypt. They've crossed the, the Red Sea. Uh, and according to this map, uh, that is up in the area to the to the north here and the traditional location of Mount Sinai is down in the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula. I don't think that's where it was located but this gives us an idea of the uh, of the area and if you look at these little yellow uh, triangles with a circle in the middle of them these are alternate sites that various people have suggested. Uh, the traditional Mount Sinai is too far uh, in terms of what the Bible says, uh, the distance they traveled, how long it took them to travel from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea, when they would probably travel uh, about the same rate of speed as a caravan, which was between 5 and 10 miles a day, they couldn't get from uh, the traditional Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea in the length of, of time. Uh, the Bible says it, it, it would just be too short. So it was probably located up 
this way, which makes more sense. This is where they have Rephidim located here on this map is very close to Sinai, um, uh, Jebel El Musa, which is the traditional site. Uh, but it would be easier for the Amalekites if it was further north in the Sinai Peninsula. If we look at Exodus chapter 17, the first part of it talks about the problem with uh, at Massa and Meribah and the lack of water. But then while they are there, they are attacked, the Israelites are attacked by Amalek. Now think about this a minute. How many Israelites are there? Based on the numbers given us in, in, in the book of Numbers related to the number of men that were of fighting age, you've got 600 to 650,000 males. Well, if you have a one woman and two children for every family, you just multiply 650,000 times four, and you have about two and a half million people. And if they were having more than two children... And remember, they were extremely prolific during the years that they were in Egypt, and they probably had a lot more children than you could have as many as three and a half million Israelites. So you think of a a, a city half the size of Houston, and Moses has to move them uh, every single day, then it's a very slow operation. You're not making a lot of progress, but you're going to be attacked by a huge army that is an existential threat. So how many Amalekites are there? Not a couple of thousand. You've got a large army that is attacking and puts your, uh, everybody at risk. So they marshal their army, which was probably just based on those numbers, maybe uh, two or 300,000 that are out there fighting uh, the Amalekites. And we read in verse, verse 9, Moses said to Joshua, choose, choose some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So he's got his staff. This is the same staff that turned into, uh, uh, turned into serpents in front of uh, Pharaoh, and which he used to, to uh, split the Red Sea. And so he's going to hold this up. And he says, I'll stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Now, Hur is another uh, leader in, among Israel. That's where uh, Lew Wallace came up with the name Ben-Hur, meaning son of Hur. His, uh, if you remember the story, his whole name was Judah Ben-Hur, which is just, you know, Judah, son of Hur, uh, descendant of this, this, this line. So Aaron and Hur stood on each side of Moses, and as long as Moses held the staff up, then Israel was winning. But if he got tired and he began to, the staff began to come down, then as it got lower and lower, then the tide turned. I'll try this at a football game sometime. Anyway, so what happened is Aaron and Hur stood on each side of him and held his arms up. And as long as his arms were up, then God gave them the victory until eventually we read in verse 13, so Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, this is the critical verse. Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. 
So God's promise here is he's going to obliterate Amalek from the face of the earth because Amalek stands in opposition uh, to Israel and God's plan to take his people uh, to the promised land. So when he announced this, that he's going to annihilate the uh, Amalekites, Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. He is the one who stands over me and protects me. For he said, because the Lord has sworn, to, sworn the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is a long-term conflict. <clears throat> so how does this then, uh, then develop? Well, we have a couple of other passages, and I'll just show these so you don't have to turn to these chapters right now. In Numbers 24.20, he, uh, this is talking about... Uh, the oracle, one of the oracles of Balaam, and he looks at Amalek and pronounces an oracle and says, Amalek was the first among the nations, but shall be the last until he perishes. So this is another prophecy of the total destruction of the uh, Amalekites. In Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19, God is speaking uh, to the uh, Israelites, and he says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. So that event at Masa and Meribah, where, at Rephidim, where uh, the Israelites fought the Amalekites, that is your benchmark for understanding what God is doing against the Amalekites. They attempted to obliterate and annihilate Israel. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Now that's some more information that we didn't get in Exodus. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. So this is our third prophecy about the total obliteration, wiping it out. That's the Hebrew word there that's translated blot out. It means to blot out or to wipe out or to eradicate. And Amalek will be wiped out uh, from under heaven. Then we have a couple of references in the book of Judges. Judges 3.13. This shows Amalek is in an alliance with Eglon, the king of Moab. Uh, Remember Eglon, the king of Moab? Uh, that's Fatty. He was the corpulent king that was killed by Ehud, the left-handed assassin. Um, so Judges 3.13, we're told about this alliance. Then he gathered to himself, the, that is uh, Eglon, uh, gathered himself the people of Ammon and Amalek, went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. What's the city of Palms? We just covered this a couple, two or three weeks ago in Matthew. It's Jericho. Jericho is the city of Palms. Judges 6.3, this is the episode leading in the introduction to Gideon. So it was whenever Israel had sown, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come in and they're invading into Israel. And so this is when Gideon goes and hides in the, in the wine press. Judges 10.12, uh, this is le- the lead into uh, Jephthah's episode. 
Also, the Sidonians, Amalekites, and Manites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hand. So what we're seeing here is again and again and again, it's the Amalekites who are attacking and trying to destroy and wipe out Israel. So this is the background. And this has created a long-term adversarial relationship with Egypt. Uh, I mean, with uh, with Israel. When you look at 1 Samuel 15, when you get into it, the king of the Amalekites at that time is a guy named Agag. And Agag is mentioned one other time in the scripture or alluded to when we get into the book of Esther and you have the anti-Semite Haman who seeks to destroy and obliterate all the Jews in Persia and gets permission to do it. And Haman is described as an Agagite. He is a descendant of Agag. And so as a result of that, in Jewish history, they will refer to all of their enemies as Amalek. The Nazis were Amalek. Uh, Islam and those who are attacking the Jews are always referred to as Amalek, and they do that to this day. You'll read something, they'll say, we're being attacked by Amalek again. You go, wait a minute, the Amalekites got wiped out a long time ago. But they use that title to refer to uh, all, of their, all of their enemies. Now, what happens in 1 Samuel 15 is because of their past aggression against Israel— and their hostility to Israel, God is going to totally destroy them. He announced that to Moses. He reaffirmed that again in Numbers. He uh, restated that uh, several more times. This is what God is going to do. He's going to wipe out the Amalekites. So what is this thing that we call holy war, and is there such a thing as biblical holy war? And in Islam, you have a thing called jihad. What is the relationship? Where does that come from? Is jihad a heretical perversion of this so-called idea of holy war in the Bible? I think it is, but let's break this down. First of all, the term holy war is not used in the Bible at all. From the research I was able to do, which wasn't exhaustive, I didn't go out and write a PhD dissertation on the topic, but from the research that I I did, the term holy war doesn't really appear until you get the idea of jihad with Islam. The concept of holy war comes from the uh, Latin word sacra for holy and bellum for war, and that becomes a common term during the period of the Crusades, which is roughly a thousand years after Christ. The term itself, there's no equivalent term in the Hebrew. It's called the ban, the harem, that, and that is not a term that's ever translated anywhere as holy war. It's just something is put under the ban. It is something devoted to God, and I'll probably not get to develop that too much this week. Uh, that'll come next week. So this term seems to be a uh, perversion or misunderstanding that grows out of an allegorical interpretation of the Old Testament and is misapplied to what was going on in uh, the Middle Ages, and it was also misapplied and distorted by uh, Muhammad in the Quran. This is a biblical term. This is a second point. The biblical term is harem, 
And I've and and if you find this a little bit confusing and difficult to understand, don't worry about it. It took me a long time to work through this because you've got to. This is really an inductive study. What does the Bible say about it? Because it's not as overtly expressed as some other things. And what we get from our modern post-enlightenment, we know more than everybody else does society, is this judgmentalism that comes out of uh, Protestant liberalism towards the God of the Old Testament who would authorize something like this. So there's a lot of garbage on this whole idea that needs to be peeled back. So I went to a couple of different sources for an understanding of this word. And the first source here is the Theological Word Book of the Old Testament that was put together and came out in the late 70s by evangelical scholars. It's a good source. And really the key thing that you need to notice is just that first sentence. The basic meaning is the exclusion of an object from the use or abuse of man and its irrevocable surrender to God. It is very close in the idea of kadash, to set something apart to the use of God. And thus we're going to see that this stands as a picture uh, for understanding sanctification. That's an application of understanding spiritual or this kind of warfare because it's going to relate to spiritual warfare in the Christian life. So the basic meaning is the exclusion of an object from the use or abuse of man and its irrevocable surrender to God. The word is related to an Arabic root, meaning to prohibit, especially to ordinary use. The word harem, meaning the special quarters for Muslim wives, comes from that. It is related also to an Ethiopic root, meaning to forbid or prohibit or to put something under a curse. Surrendering something to God meant devoting it to the service of God or putting it under a ban for utter destruction. It's like a whole burnt offering. When you put that animal on the altar, everything is burned up. All the smoke, everything goes up to God, and no humans are eat from it. Now, the fellowship offering, they ate from part of it, but nothing is left for man. It all goes to God, and that was the idea is that 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 when uh, we'll see this, when, when Joshua attacks Jericho, they're, they, they're prohibited from any plunder. They can't take any women. Everything is killed, and then everything is destroyed, and no one can benefit from it. So unlike jihad or these other perversions of this concept, there's no individual benefit to anybody. Everything goes to God. It is set apart for God. The New inter- this N-I-D-O-T-T-E is the New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis. Say that real fast three or four times. This is a five-volume set that came out in the late 90s. It means, this is just the opening paragraph summary, consecration for service to God is dealt with in Leviticus 27-28, Joshua 6-18, Micah 4-13, where it relates to objects. Whatever is devoted to the Lord, be it a human being, an animal, or property, is considered most holy by God and is therefore not to be sold or redeemed by substituting something else. According to Numbers 18.14 and Ezekiel 44.29, all such objects are to be given to the priests for the support of the religious ceremonies. The gold, silver, bronze, and iron from Jericho, for instance, was so designated. It's not to go to the benefit uh, to make anybody wealthy. So that's the idea. It's, what's that first word? Consecration. 
when you hear a word like consecration or sanctification, we need to think, okay, there's an application here related to the spiritual life. Third point, which is the one I've been making, is that as such, the core idea of consecrating something to God informs us that the doctrinal application is going to relate to sanctification, that some things are set apart for God's use, and that's the idea in the Christian life. So where we're going to see an area of application brought over from the Old Testament concept of harem is to the New Testament concept of spiritual warfare. In the church age... The only authorized warfare for the believer, other than to defend your your national entity, is spiritual warfare. And that is the individual believers, it's a metaphor for the individual believers' battle to grow uh, spiritually. Unlike Islamic Jihad or the heresy of of the Christian Crusades, Fighting in a harem did nothing towards somebody's salvation or their spiritual life or their spiritual status. It didn't make them holier. It didn't improve their spiritual life. It didn't guarantee them in place of heaven. That's what happens in Islamic jihad is they get guaranteed a place in heaven. You have none of that. That was part of what was promised by the popes to the uh, Catholics who went on the Crusades was that they would have in, indulgences. They would, uh, their sins would be canceled out. It, it was the same kind of idea you have in Islam. But none of those ideas are part of biblical truth or biblical Christianity. So uh, under point number four, which I skipped to point six, I don't have a slide on point four. Uh, point four, in the Bible, there's a period of intense warfare between Israel and her neighbors where God authorizes Israel to destroy specific peoples because of their horrible sins and the years of their hostility toward God. That is the crux of Haram, is that there are certain people who live in specific geographical areas, the land that God promised Israel, and they are so perverted and so reprobate that they have... have forfeited the right to continue as a people and as a culture. There are Canaanite groups. If we really understood, if I stood up here and described, as I have come to understand what went on in Canaanite religion, some of you would throw up. Others of you would be so embarrassed you'd never want to show your face at church again. I mean, it was sexual perversion to the grossest limit that of anything that's going on in this country today, and much, much worse. Uh, There was infant sacrifices. Thousands, tens of thousands of babies were immolated in the arms of their idols and burned alive day in and day out. Uh, It was considered in the ancient world the worst of all the religions, and God allowed them to go on for over for almost 600 years before he wiped them out. God just didn't wake up one day and go, okay, we're going to obliterate the Canaanites. This was something that took place over an extremely long uh, period, period of time. Under point number five, this is related to God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis 15, God is uh, cutting the covenant with Abraham. 
And in the midst of that, God said to Abraham in verse 13, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them for 400 years. So he's telling Abraham that you're going to go through several generations, and then you're going to end, your descendants are going to end up in a land that's not theirs, it's not the promised land, and they're going to serve the people in that land for 400 years. That's the Egyptian uh, captivity, the Egyptian slavery. And then he says, but in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God is going to do, he multitasks. He's going to take the, the uh, 70 or so that are with Jacob. He's going to take them down to Israel, isolate them in Goshen so that he's going to give them, uh, 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 bless them with, the, uh, with hyper-fertility, and they're going to grow very rapidly to about three and a half uh, million people, and he's going to protect them from any sort of, uh, remember, he's protecting the seed. So the Egyptians have this great prejudice and hostility towards towards the Semites. They won't even sit in the same room and eat with them. They won't have anything to do with them. They they th- their level of of segregation would have made the Ku Klux Klan look like a bunch of wannabes. They they were so hyper in their hatred and dislike of the Semites. So because of that, there's no Egyptians who are going to marry or have sexual relations with any Semites. Uh, that'd be the last thing in the world that they would want to do. So this is going to allow God to preserve uh, the ethnic purity uh, uh, of the Jews. So uh, they're going to come back to the land in the fourth generation because by that time, after 400 plus years, the Canaanite perversion is going to reach its fullness. God's going to give them enough rope to hang themselves, and they are going to destroy themselves through their own their own perversion. So let's look at how this is developed in these three passages in Exodus, Numbers, and Leviticus. I want to look at, first of all, at Exodus chapter 23. You're probably still at Exodus 17, so just turn over a few chapters to Exodus chapter uh, 23. And we'll look at Exodus 23, chapter or 23, verse 20. And here he is talking to uh, Moses and the Israelites, telling them how he's going to protect them and what he's going to do in leading them back to the land that God had promised them. He says, Behold, I, uh, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Now, that's the angel of Yahweh. That's the angel who appears to Joshua and is the real general who leads the troops, the host of Israel, against the Canaanites. I'll send this angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Sounds pretty harsh. He's not talking to the Canaanites. He's talking to his own people and says, if you don't do exactly as he says, then the punishment on you is going to be pretty harsh. And we'll see that next time when we look at Judges 7 and what happens when Achan sinned. Verse 22, but if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel, that is the pre-incarnate Christ, by the way, will go before you and bring you into the who? The Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. Did I mention the Amalekites? They're not in the list. 
Okay, these are all the other Canaanite groups that are in the land. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. In other words, you wipe out everything. So you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from the midst of you. No one shall suffer miscarriages or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the, uh, the number of your days. And he goes on to describe that. Verse 28, I will send hornets before you, which will drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year. Why? Because if I drive them out in one year, you haven't settled it, the land yet. It's going to be progressive, just like sanctification is progressive. It will be progressive because if you did it all at one time, then the land would be barren. There would be nobody to work it or anything. So... Um, uh, you don't want to do that, so you'll take it, verse 30, little by little. I'll drive them out from before you until you've increased and inherit the land. And I will set your bounds from the Red Sea to Philistia, from the desert to the river, and I'll deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. See, this is the rationale for holy for, for harem, is because of their sin, judgment is coming, and Israel is the instrument of that judgment. Now let's turn over to Numbers. Two books to the right, Leviticus and then Numbers, and we're in Numbers chapter 33. Numbers 33, verses 40 to 53. And here we're going to see at the end of Numbers, we're going to see again uh, the significance of Amalek here. Numbers 30, 40 to 53. Now the king of Arad, the Canaanite who dwelt in the south, in the Negev, to the land of Canaan, heard of the coming of the children of Israel. So they departed from Mount Hor and camped at Zalmona. And they, they gives you their travel log as they go through, through the Negev and leading up to coming into the land. And the purpose for looking at, um, I was looking at 40 to 53. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan, across from Jericho, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, destroy all their engraved stones. So you run everybody out, kill them in all the engraved stones, that's their idols, destroy all their molded images, another kind of idol, demolish all of their high places, that's where they were sacrificing children. Verse 53, you shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell in it, for I have given you the land to possess, because God as a creator has the right to dispose of land the way he sees fit. And now let's go back to Leviticus, one book to the left, Leviticus 18. And we'll look at verses 24 and 27. Verse 24 says, Do not defile yourself with any of these things. That mean, that word translated defile means to become ritually unclean. So it's talking about their ritual cleanness and uncleanness. It's always going to relate to sanctification. Do not defile yourself with any of these things, for by all these the nations are defiled, which I'm casting out before you. For the land is defiled. See, we get this idea that sin only impacts our, our soul that it only impacts the immaterial or spiritual dimension. But what we see in Genesis 3, and we see it here, is that there is a connection between sin 
and the land. There's a connection between the immaterial of sin, the spiritual state of a people, and the physical condition of the land and their physical um, uh, blessing or cursing. Leviticus 18.24, all, all, uh, verse 25, For the land is defiled, the land itself is unclean. Therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or any stranger dwells in you. For all these abominations uh, the men in the land have done before, and thus the land is defiled. Sin defiles a land. There's a connection there. There's a connection between uh, the spiritual and the physical. So the seventh point. The cause of God's intervention was not because Israel was so good. God didn't choose Israel because they were holy or because they were righteous. God didn't choose them because they were so positive. Just read about the Exodus generation. They weren't that positive. They were grumbling. They were complaining. They were all believers, but they were rotten believers. The only two that, that had any spiritual sense were Caleb and Joshua. Everybody else is a spiritual failure, and the New Testament in Hebrews talks about that as their spiritual failure. God says they're stiff-necked people. but So he says that uh, he doesn't choose them for that reason. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 5, we read, It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess the land but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out. So God said, I'm not giving the land because you've been so good. I'm taking the land away from them because they've been so evil. It's a judgment on them. God drives them out before you that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So from a spiritual standpoint, God is looking at this as a battle between the kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of man, Satan's empowers human culture to establish his kingdom apart from God versus God's plan to establish his kingdom on the earth where his presence will dwell in Israel. And so biblical harem is a type or a picture of uh, spiritual warfare that takes place in the individual lives uh, of believers. So point nine, and we'll stop here, come back next time. During this limited period of history from the conquest in 1406 through the last, that's a typo there, for the last period, uh, I mean, through the, the last period of, 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 uh, of Saul, the rules of engagement are described in Deuteronomy 20, which apply to the Canaanites, but there's a different list of rules of engagement in Deuteronomy chapter 20, which applies to the non-Canaanite population. So those who lived around Canaan were not to be treated in the same way. They would go to these other cities. They would give them an opportunity to surrender. If they did, everything was fine. If they didn't, then they were to kill all the men, but the women and children were to be taken care of. The animals weren't supposed to be killed. That was okay. But if they were a Canaanite in the land, everything was wiped out. And no one since 1050 B.C., this event in 1 Samuel 15, no one since then is authorized for harem. No one. It never happened again in the Old Testament. This has to do with a unique and distinct situation. So we'll come back next time 
and look at these descriptions in Deuteronomy chapter 20, as well as uh, review the character of God problem, and then we're going to look at examples of this in the book of Jericho, which will be kind of interesting in some other dimensions because I want to bring in some of the things uh, that I learned when I was in Israel on the last trip, and we were um, uh, walking between uh, I and Bethel and all the debate that goes on those locations and that kind of a thing. So uh, that will be next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening. May we be encouraged with the fact that that we learn important important things here. We learn about your righteousness and justice. We learn about your grace and your long-suffering uh, as directed toward those who continually uh, sin in the most perverse ways. And we learn about your grace towards Israel despite their rebelliousness. You still provided them with this, this rich land uh, and promised to give, them, give it to them for all eternity. Uh, and it's theirs forever and ever and never to be taken away. Father, we uh, pray for us that we might uh, continue to focus on our own spiritual warfare, uh, recognizing that we are to have a no-holds-barred, no-prisoners-taken mentality towards the sin in our own life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.